previously on The God-Shaped Heart. Here's the key to this three-message series that I'm going to do. Immature motivation won't produce true transformation. The first covenant that God made with the people of Israel, mankind in its moral infancy, was a very simple one, reward and punishment. Could it be that some of us, our obedience to God is, is more motivated by our thoughts that if I do this, God will bless me. And I, and I want him to bless me. And if I don't do this, man, he's liable to punish me. And I don't want his punishment. You're like, God, okay, you can see, you can see, look at me. I'm here in church. I'm here. I, I don't miss a Sunday. You see that. And, um, and I read your word. I read it really regularly. So, so okay, so you got you to gotta take care of me. You got to make my relationships work. You got to keep me healthy, wealthy, wise. You got to give me a job. You got to do this. You got to do that. You do that for me, God. And, and, and you, you bless me financially, and I'll give you back ten, a tenth of it and all that. So you do this for me, and I'll do that for you. Uh, I want to start where I mentioned last week that this series is unusual in that it's connected to a book. And very, very rarely in the 27-year ministry of this church have I recommended a book for everybody to get. I am recommending this one. In fact, I so wish all of you would uh, read this book. It's called The God-Shaped Heart. I don't know if we have any left. I know we had some more in this morning. Uh, anybody give me a signal back there? Give me some kind of sign. <laughs> Girl. <laughs> we don't know. Okay, the answer is we don't know. But you can get it, you know, on Amazon, online, all these places. But... Uh, if you only read one other book beside the Bible, Christian book, I wish you would read this one. Okay. So what we said is that it's hard to get a feel or a fix for the shape of our heart. Our heart is in. Even physically, you have to have some kind of a diagnostic. And in this series, I've given you kind of a diagnostic. It's what is my, what is your core uh, moral motivation? And so by looking at our core moral motivation, we can get a a sense of the shape that our heart is in. And so here's where we started uh, this series last week. Well, let, let, me, let me jump to this first. I think it's important for us to recognize when we're talking about having a God-shaped heart, we're talking about our hearts being made again in the likeness that God originally intended, which is the likeness of Christ himself. So here's what the book of Ephesians says about each and every one of us, when we're fully mature, fully human, fully alive, this is what we'll be like. Then we will be mature, but being mature means just as what? Christ is. That's what it means for you to be mature, for me to be mature. In this life, it is the plan, it is the intention of God that we first reconnect with him by putting our trust in Christ, becoming his follower. Then God wants us to start growing up and healing and maturing, and when we mature, we will become just like Christ. We will have a God-shaped heart, and we will be completely, what does it say? Like Him. That's in this life. Don't thank heaven. One of the big problems with uh, churches is that we have somehow given people the notion that God is more concerned about our transportation, transportation to heaven, rather than our transformation, that um, God's main concern is just getting us to learn certain doctrines or repeat certain beliefs so that he can then have the judicial right to transport us to heaven. But that's not what the scripture teaches at all. The scripture teaches that when human beings broke trust with their creator, we started breaking. We started becoming ill at the core of our being. And God wants to come now and rescue us. And the start of that rescue is when we actually, we actually put our trust back in our creator. And that shows itself 
by my desire to follow Jesus, and I desire to follow him. Notice the emphasis. It's not that I'm afraid. It's not that I'm trying to uh, make my way into heaven. I desire to follow him because I actually trust him. I follow him freely. I follow him fully. Whatever he says to do, I do. Whatever he says stop doing, I stop doing because I trust him. And I will follow him forever. That's what it means to be a Christian, to be a Christ follower. So God's goal is for us to mature. That means having a God-shaped heart. So where we went last week is with this statement. Immature motivation won't produce true transformation. Listen, God is not so concerned about what we know and what we think and even our exterior behavior. Don't get me wrong, it's all critical, but the exterior behavior has to be really coming from what's inside of us. God is always looking inside. It said in 1 Samuel 16, 7, that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. We saw in Jeremiah last week, it says that the Lord searches the heart and we will be rewarded. We will be judged ultimately based on not our outward condition, what we show to people, but who we really are. Our heart is our truest, deepest, hidden self. Okay. So immature motivation won't produce true transformation. Now, we introduced some immature core uh, moral motivation last week. And we had this list we share with you. So last week we covered these are immature. Everything above this line are immature moral motivators. They will not. You've got to hear this. You could be a Christian for 30 years, 40 years, and you will never be transformed. You will just be kind of stuck. Okay? Reward and punishment. Marketplace exchange, you know, uh, I'll do this for you, God, if you do that for me. Today, we're going to look at two more immature motivators, social conformity and law and order. Now, next week, we'll take in all these three. These last three are the only moral motivators that will actually transform you or I. They, they will change us from the very inside out. We will actually be different people. The very neural pathways in our brains will be changed, will be transformed. These four up here, they'll only produce exterior conformity. These four up here, you always need some kind of coercion or somebody watching or, or something to uh, rekindle our concern for ourself primarily. All right, let's go into today's uh, message then. We want to look first of all at two immature moral motivators. And the first one is something called social conformity. And we all know what social conformity is. And uh, maybe we'll just start by kind of asking this question on a light level. Social conformity in church world usually works like this. It's kind of like, okay, maybe the person says, I've put my trust in Christ, but now I watch to see what everyone else in the church world is doing or is not doing, and that's how I model my behavior. If, if everyone is not doing something, even though the scripture says to do it, I'm not going to do it either. If everyone is doing something, well, I'm going to do it. I'm, I'm trying to kind of blend. I'm trying to kind of fit in. Look at this passage from the Gospel of John, and uh, it's focusing attention on Jesus. It says, many rulers believed in Jesus. Those were the religious rulers of that time. Many rulers believed in Jesus. They believed he was the Messiah. They really did. But, however, they wouldn't admit it publicly because the Pharisees would have them thrown out of the synagogue. It goes on. They were more concerned about what people thought of them than about what, what does it say? What God thought of them. Now, you know, we might say, well, no, that's not me. You know, I care more what God thinks of me. I, you know, I don't care as much what people. But I guarantee you, you have, we all have certain context where 
it's less comfortable to maybe be more overt about our feelings or our devotion uh, when it comes to Christ. And we know what it takes to blend in with certain people, maybe certain family members, and it exerts a pressure on us. It, it forms our identity. So here we see this first one, social conformity. These were guys that actually believed Jesus was Messiah, but they wouldn't tell anybody because they didn't want to get kicked out of the synagogue. They cared more about the opinions and the favor of people. There's another verse from the Old Testament. It says, it's, da it's dangerous to be concerned with what others think of you, but if you put, uh, but if you put, the, but if you put trust in the Lord, you are safe. So here's just saying, if, if our trust is in Christ, we don't have to live as a puppet to the opinions and the feelings of other people. But that's still a real pressure. came across an article where there was a, uh, a power company and a retirement company. They both did experiments and found that by exerting peer pressure, they could, they could really be effective in reaching a goal. For example, the power company, they took 18 million of their constituents and they took their bills and they put them into a model where if you lived in a certain neighborhood, let's say you had a 2,000 square foot house, well, you could see what other people in your neighborhood with 2,000 square foot houses, what they were paying on an average for their electric bill. And by seeing what others were paying, they found that some people that were being real wasteful with utilities, they started cutting back. And ended up saving in one year $1.1 billion. Let's uh, do 18 million people. So conforming to the pressure of others deeply affected them. There's another company, a retirement firm. They did the same thing with 8 million people. They would pass out reports saying that, gee, if you're this age and you make this much money, here's what most people your age making this much money have in retirement and are putting in retirement. The result was they also saw a 25% increase in the retirement fund because people were motivated by other people to try to blend in, to try to go along. In Psychology Today, it said this, social pressure often causes people to change their picture of reality. And those who resist it are emotionally upset. Fitting in feels good, even at the expense of your otherwise good senses. And we pay an emotional price for the courage of our convictions. So some people, their core moral motivation, all things considered, is to fit in. They, they ask that question, what's everybody else doing? That's what I'm going to do. Pause for a minute and ask yourself, could that really be the root? Could that be your core moral motivation? That you look around and you want to blend in. All right, let's look at a, a, third, a fourth one that uh, is, is also insufficient. And that's law and order. That, that's rule keeping. We're all familiar with that. Jesus gives the example of the religious leaders in his day. He says to them, what sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are, what is the word? Filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. He goes on. You blind Pharisees, first wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too. He goes on again. What sorrows await you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. I, I believe, is, is, it, is it one more? Yeah. Outwardly, you look like what kind of people? 
righteous people. They were very scrupulous outwardly. But inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. And that word lawlessness, it's interesting. Greek word, it's anomia. It means that they were just driven by their desires. Sometimes they felt like doing the right thing and they did it. Sometimes when they didn't want to do what was right in the sight of God, they didn't do it. They were lawless. But outwardly, they were very, very religious. But God's always looking at the heart. He doesn't want to look at just what we do. He wants to know why we do it. He wants to know the inward condition. If my inward condition doesn't match my outward condition, then that doesn't really satisfy the heart of God because he loves us too much. He loves us as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us as we are. And he literally, he literally wants to change us from the inside out. But it's a cooperative kind of a thing. So the second one is rule keeping or keeping of laws. Here's another verse that kind of points to it. Jesus said, you who pretend to be someone you are not, Isaiah told about you. He said, these people show respect to me with their mouth, but their heart is far from me. So these were rule keepers. They, they were people that were led by uh, kind of a, the law, law and order. Now, rule, rule keepers are always looking for a way around the rules. Uh, they're not really interested in the point. They're looking for the way to get what they want to do. We all know with kids, if you give a kid a rule, I guarantee you that's a kid's going to find a way around that rule. For example, you, you tell a kid, okay, once you, once you upstairs and in bed lights out at 10 o'clock, all right, there's your rule. That's clear enough, correct? But you go upstairs at 10 o'clock, it would not be unusual at all to find your kid with the lights out, but under their cover, they're, they're texting, you know. And so then, then you bust them. They're bu yeah, didn't I tell you, lights out and in bed at 10 o'clock? And what is the kid going to say to you? I am in bed. The lights are out. What are, you, what are you persecuting me for? I'm doing exactly what you said. But the kid knew your intent. So it is with rule keepers. Rule keepers find ways to do what they really want to do. So these are immature moral motivators. And it's really important, I think, that we just stop again and ask ourselves, am I, am I really motivated by law and order? I, I just want to know, what, what are the rules? What, what, what is the guy wants me to do? And, and I just want to do it. I just want to get him, you know, on my side if I can. What are the rules? Now, here's where this thing gets critical. There's this notion behind rule keeping in particular that God's will, his ways, his word, his laws... They're just kind of arbitrary. They're, they're just kind of, you know, made up. He's, he's the most powerful person in the universe. He can make up any laws he wants, and so he just slams these rules down for us, and then it's up to us to do them or not do them. We, we kind of look at it sometimes like that. If we believe that, it shows two things. First of all, we have a very twisted view of God and his character, but we also have an incorrect view of his laws or his word or his will, his ways, however you want to say it. So... Let's look at two different views of God's law. One is design law. Design law, it's the way God has constructed all reality to function based on his perfect knowledge and love. Design law is the only way life can work. In other words, God says do certain things or don't do certain things, not because they're arbitrary, not because he's all-powerful, because he knows there's only one way life can work so that with free individual beings all exercising their free will wanting to have the happiest life possible there's only one way life can work and that's what God calls his laws 
So the, it's the only way life can work, and they are inevitable and inescapable. For example, gravity. You stand on a thousand-foot cliff, and you step off the edge of it. You don't break the law of gravity. You get broken. They are inescapable laws and inevitable. They always affect us. They don't always affect us where we can see it or feel it immediately, but they always do. They always affect others close around us. So that's design law. Let, let me look at a, a second one. And this is imposed law. Imposed law is what we're, we're most used to. It's, uh, you know, where a society, a government, gets a bunch of people together, some legislators, and they, they kind of figure out, well, this is what we think will make society better, safer, and they make up some laws. Man-made rules enforced by the threat of punishment. They're not the only way life can work. They're, they're fallible, in other words, and they're not inevitable and inescapable. Let me give you an example of what I mean. How many of you uh, either drive down Route 15 fairly regularly or down 270 rather regularly? Let's see your hands. Okay? Got a picture of somebody going down 270, I think. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> so, but let's just say you're going down Route 15. Route 15 is 55 miles an hour. It's the speed limit. That's an imposed law. Okay? Now, I know you don't observe this regularly. No, no, no. You don't know where I'm going with this. I, I mean, what I'm going to say is this. is I'm going to ask you a question. What percentage of people... On Route 15, where the law, the imposed law is 55 miles an hour, what percentage of the people do you think go over that law, if you had to just guess? Yeah, same thing in any in the other service, about 90%. And, and it's not like you observe it all the time, but you know that if you happen to be one going 55 miles an hour, cars go whipping by you and doing all these sign language things. And <laughs> so you know about 90% of the people are breaking that imposed law. Now, I'm not saying any of you are, but you observe it. You, you see this happening. So here's the question. Why do they, why do they, 90% of them, break that law? Are they evil people? Are they just irresponsible and they don't care about endangering the life of others? No, that's not true at all. Let's be realistic. Here's what's true. They know that if they go 56 miles an hour, it doesn't cause an instantaneous accident on the highway. They know that. They know that the wheels don't immediately fall off the front of your car if you go 56 miles an hour. They know that everybody doesn't go into a panic and start running into each other head on. They know that. What they know, what they know, not you, but what they know, <laughs> is you can go 56, 60, 65, 90% of the people are 60 to 65 miles an hour over the 10 miles an hour, 5 to 10 miles an hour over the speed limit. And why do they do that? Are they evildoers? No. What they know is that it's technically still safe. They think 55 is a good idea. <laughs> they just don't think it's an absolute necessary. Now, if somebody goes whipping by at 80 or 90 miles an hour, they say, well, who was that fool? Somebody ought to arrest him, you know, and which, which we all agree. You need some kind of limit. So 55 is a pretty good starting place, knowing full good and well, 90% of the people are going to go 5 to 10 miles an hour over that. But we do it not because we're evil, not because we're inconsiderate of others, simply because we know some things. We know, we, yeah, right? We know you can go up and down that highway most of your life, 5, 10 miles over the speed limit, and you don't cause mayhem on the highway. Nobody dies. 
You also know you don't get a ticket every time, right? I mean, you know, you, know you, you can skate down that road most times without getting a ticket unless that camera's there. And then the camera turns everybody into a 55-mile-an-hour <laughs> driver, you know, unless you don't see it, and then you're like, oh, shoot, what was that flash? And you know, you know. So this is imposed law. We, we don't really believe in them. We submit to them, but we don't believe that they are inescapable or that they are perfect, unalterable. Now, let me show you something very different, design law. Now, I'm going to show you an example of both design law and impose law in action. All right, let me show you another picture. Suppose you came upon a piece of property with this sign, danger, no trespassing, violators will be prosecuted. That would be imposed law, judicial law. If you get caught, that means you go to jail. They're going to prosecute you. But the second part of it is design law, radioactive material. All right? So if you, let's say you can't even read English and you don't know what that sign says, but you're curious about this property and so you go on the property and now you are exposed to radioactive material. What happens to you? Are, are you excused because you couldn't read the sign? Oh, no, 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 no. You're going to start to die. You're not going to die immediately because radioactive, um, you know, Poisoning, it takes time to get in your system. It might be a month, it might be two months, but you start to die because you have broken design law. Your physiology and radiation or radioactive material, it won't coexist together. You can't have a say in that. The first law is judicial law or imposed law. You might get caught, you might not get caught. The other one is design law. When God says things like the soul that sins, it will die. When God said to Adam and Eve, you know, don't, don't, don't partake of the tree of knowledge of good and evil because you'll die. Did that mean that God was going to kill them? That it was a judicial punishment? You, you take, partake of that tree and I'm going to kill you, Adam. I'm going to kill you, Eve. When the scripture says in Romans 6, 23, the wages or the result of sin is death. Does that mean that God is now going to execute us? That everybody that breaks uh, one of his laws has a death sentence hanging over their head? That's the way it's taught in most churches. That once you... Break one of his laws. You have a death sentence hanging over your head. That would be imposed law, judicial law. And you got to hear this one. Some of you that have been... How many in here have been a Christian longer than five years? Can I see your hands? Okay, you especially need to hear this. Most Christians, unfortunately, think that God's laws are imposed or judicial. And that the only real issue is we don't want to be punished by him. We need forgiveness. But the truth is his laws are all design laws so that when we break them, it is impossible to escape the brokenness inside and sometimes outside of ourselves. They are design laws. You say, but wait, wait a minute, I, I can think of all kinds of sins that a person can sin and they don't have any results whatsoever, none that they know of. It's kind of like radiation poisoning. You don't know you have it right away, but in time you know it. When Adam and Eve broke trust with God and they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they received a death sentence, right? But God didn't kill them. How many know how long Adam lived after that? Or his total age before he died? 912 years old. So God, God didn't kill him, but sin killed him. This is what you've got to get, you that have been Christian more than five years. When God is telling us, don't do that, don't do that. When he's saying, stay away from that. 
He's not saying, or else I'm going to bash you, or in judgment, I'm going to, you know, fry you or something like that. He's saying, this will kill you. This will destroy your soul. You're made very delicate. You're made in the image of God. And things like dishonesty and other forms of sin that we think are lightweight, they, they do deteriorating things inside of us. They blunt our conscience. They harden our hearts. They make our decision-making process darken. They do all kinds of things that we don't even know it's happening because they cause us to be insensitive as they occur. But, but the thing I want you to hear is this, is that God tells us not to do certain things, not because he's imposing his will on us, but because he loves us. And he knows that these things will destroy us. If you can internalize that, I, I can tell you, that's a transforming principle right there. Your attitude toward God's word, his will, his ways will change dramatically. And your attitude towards what scripture calls sin will change dramatically. All right, so that's level one, social conformity. Some people do what they do because they just want to blend in. Some people do what they do because they're trying to keep the rules you know, they just want to stay within the boundaries, but they don't really care about the deeper intent. God wants to shape our heart and our character and prepare us for the world that is to come. So now I want to quickly, wait a minute, where's Kim at? I wasn't supposed to say the word quickly. <laughs> now I'm going to slowly share three moral motivators that are mature. Uh, the first two I share with you are immature. Here we go, number one. From Ephesians chapter 1, it says, Since you are God's dear children, you must try to be like him. Notice it's not going to be automatic. We're, we're to try. We're to cooperate with God. Your life must be controlled by what? We saw this last week. Love. That's a mature motivator. And love is God's kind of love. I seek the highest well-being and happiness of the other person. It, it's not that I'm getting anything out of it necessarily. I just seek the other person's highest well-being and happiness as God reveals it. That's a mature, transforming motivator. Let me show you another one. The book of Philippians in the New Testament, chapter 1, verse 9. Paul says, I pray this, that your love, we've seen that a minute ago, but your love will keep on growing in knowledge in every kind of, what is the word? Well, that, that sounds kind of weird. So it's okay, we're to be motivated by love, but what does he mean that my love needs to keep on growing in knowledge in every kind of discernment? We're going to come back to that. that. That'll be important in a minute. Let me show you a third one. Here's Jesus talking to those religious leaders again. And they were judging him because of his doing a healing on the Sabbath, the, the, the day of rest to the Jewish nation. And Jesus tried to tell them the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He told them he was the Lord or the creator of the Sabbath. But anyway, he tells them and he tells all of us, look beneath the surface so you can do what? judge correctly we, we are to judge we are to discern we are to examine things if we're going to be motivated uh, to the right ends and the right behavior all right let me now I want you to just box those off those are three mature motivators now I'm going to share two verses with you really quickly and I want you to just focus on them and believe me we're going somewhere with this I'm taking you somewhere all right this is really clear this is from the New Testament book of Romans, chapter 13, verse 1. Everyone is to obey the governing authorities, for there is no authority that is not, excuse me, there is no authority that is not from God, and the existing authorities have been placed where they are by who? He's talking about government authorities. He goes on. 
Therefore, whoever resists the authorities is resisting what God has instituted, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Is that, is that pretty clear? Everybody, you think you understand what that means? That, that God's saying, whatever your government structure is, it's instituted, it's established by God, and obey it. Is that, is that pretty clear? I, I, I'm, you're not, I'm not sure you're with me. How many, that's clear too, can I see your hands? I mean, that, that's what it means. It's not, not a trick, okay? All right, I'm gonna show you another one. This one you'll get for sure. Leviticus 19, 11. Do not steal, cheat, or lie. Is that clear? <laughs> do not, I mean, really, do not steal, cheat, or lie. You can't miss that one, right? All right, so we saw one that said, obey your government, whatever, whatever government you have, wherever you're living, whatever time in history. Second one, don't, don't steal, cheat, or lie. All right. Let me take you back in your imaginations uh, to the year 1933. And let me take you out of this country and let me put you in Germany. And Hitler has now, with the National Socialist Party, they, they've taken over, and he is the up-and-coming Fuhrer. Now, in Germany at this time, what you may not know is there were 60 million Germans living in Germany. Literally all of them except for a tiny, tiny percentage, were nominally Christian. They estimate that 60% of the German people were Protestant Christian and 40% were Catholic Christian. There, there was less than 1% of the population in Germany that happened to be Jewish. So here's your 60 million people population. Now, the interesting thing about these quote 60 million nominally Christian Germans is that they couldn't find hardly any of them that were not anti-Semitic. Almost all these quote Christians were anti-Semitic. There was a very small handful of Christians that were not. All right, now let me get you into a situation. You're there, but you're one of the Christians that is not anti-Semitic. You love God and you love people. And you see the evil of what Hitler is doing. And the war has taken off. And you see country after country being conquered. And you see the Jews being carted off to death camps. And, and you know this is evil. You're, you're a German Christian, but you're not one that's blending in like the others. You're not a rule keeper. You're not one that's being ruled by social conformity like the others. You're different. And there were some, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So you're hiding Jews in your house. You're trying to save Jews from being killed. And you've got five Jews well hidden in your house, and your house is built in such a way that they could easily be hidden there until the end of the war and nobody would know. You yourself have five other family members. And then one day, the neighbors somehow tip off the Gestapo. You're hiding, you're hiding Jewish people in your house. The word has already been out that anybody that's doing this, you will be killed and your family will be killed as well as all the Jews that are found. It's a sure death sentence for you and your family members as well as the Jews. And then the day comes that this happens. They kick down your door and they burst in. The Jews are hidden in their hiding place, but you and your family members are right there and they come up to you and they ask you, are you hiding Jews? Now, we just read 
Romans 13, 1 and 2, that all government is of God and that we should obey it. You read it, I read it. We also read, don't lie. And we know that all through the Bible, it says that God hates a lie and a liar. So here you are, you're a Christian. You're hiding Jews, which means you've disobeyed the government authority already. And if you tell them the truth that you are hiding Jews, as a Christian, you don't want to lie, so you tell them the truth, not only are you going to die, but you're going to, you're going to cause the death of your whole family. You're going to watch your children slaughtered before your eyes. And the Jews that are in there will ultimately be found and they will die too. So Christian, and don't answer out loud, but answer this one in your heart. So Christian, what would you do? Would you say nothing? It means a death sentence for you and your family and your house will be torn apart and the Jews will die too. Would you tell the truth? I'm a Christian. I won't lie for anybody or anything. I'm going to tell the truth. Well, you you're just gave a death sentence to your family and the Jews that are hiding there. Or Christian, would you lie? How would you answer that one? Before you answer it, I want you to consider something. There's a lady in the Bible. Her name is Rahab. How many have ever heard of her? Okay. You can find her in Joshua chapter 6. The Israelites are getting ready to take the city of Jericho by God's orders. They send some spies in. She hides these spies and some men of the city come and say, Hey, wait a minute. We, we heard that the spies came to you and, uh, and we want to catch these guys. You know, so tell us where they're at. And she says, oh, oh yeah, they, they were here, but they've already left. And she had hidden them upstairs in her house. And she lied to the people of her town. She lied to them. She is in the New Testament book of Hebrews chapter 11 as a hero of the faith. She is in the book of James chapter 2 side by side with Abraham as a model of one that trusts God and that we should follow her model. But she's there because she lied. She's also called Rahab the harlot because that's what she was. She's also in the lineage of Jesus. She's also a member of God's kingdom. So what are you saying, Randy? What are you doing, man? Are you telling us that, that it's good to lie? That, that if you get in an uncomfortable situation, lie? No. I'm saying that we are to be motivated by mature motivation. And mature motivation is love. And love sometimes, remember we read in Philippians 1.9, it needs knowledge and discernment. It means that I can't just follow rules aimlessly and blindly. I've got to think, what would be the, the loving thing? What's, what's the thing that's going to save the most life? What I'm saying is 99.9% .9 of the time, you and I as Christ followers should tell the truth. But if it means saving a life, well, then there's a higher law of love. Let, let me give you another example. This in the New Testament. Jesus said in uh, Matthew chapter 5, 42, he says, Give to anybody that asks of you. And anybody that asks for a loan, give it to them. Supposing, supposing you're just a mindless rule follower, and so you've got somebody in your family that is an addict, and they know you're a Christian, and you've got to obey Matthew 5, 42. They know that every time they, come to, they, they need some money to score, they come to you, and you've got to give to them, because Jesus said, Give to him who asks of you. 
And so you keep giving them money so they can keep scoring drugs. Or maybe they're just an irresponsible spender and they keep coming to you because they know Jesus said in Matthew 5, 42, give to him who asks and they take advantage of it. Would you be following the law of love to keep giving to them? Or would having knowledge and discernment cause you to say no? I'm not going to give you any money. They say, but wait a minute, Jesus says right there, you're supposed to give me when I ask. And you say, no, but I am to love the Lord my God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, and my neighbor as myself. And because I love you, I will not give to you. I will help you get treatment. I will help you learn how to handle your finances and so on. Do you see what I'm trying to say? That's mature. That's not mindless rule keeping. God wants to bring us to a place of maturity. We know the apostles once were dragged in Acts chapter 5 before the rulers. They were beaten. They were threatened. They said, don't you ever go and preach or teach in the name of this man Jesus again. Don't you do it anywhere. They looked these guys right in the face and they said, we're going to obey God rather than man. They defied Romans 13 which said, obey your government. They said, no, no, no. Jesus said all authority on heaven and earth was given to him. And he told us, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And that is what we'll do. Sometimes Christians... Mature motivation calls for discernment and knowledge. Social conformity is immature motivation. Rule keeping, law and order is immature. We're going to talk next week about three mature levels of motivation. And those levels will transform your heart. They'll, they'll change you and I from the inside out. And that's, that's what God wants to do and no less than that. He actually wants to, can and desires to change us so that we are like Jesus progressively for the rest of our lives from the inside out. All right. Maybe you've discovered here today that you're at one of those uh, insufficient levels of motivation. Maybe you know today you found out, man, I am. I'm, I'm motivated by social conformity. I just kind of do what blends. But I want to change that starting today. Maybe you learned today I'm a rule keeper. I, I'm just all about law and order you know what what is God's laws you know I'll, I'll do what I have to do but I don't really want to do it but I'll just do what I have to do and maybe today you recognize no that's not sufficient so you have that opportunity to say God I want to be motivated by the things that are mature by love by faith by trust by principle by partnering with you the living God I, I, I want you to really have my heart and it's going to start today and maybe to somebody here today, you've never for the first time in your life ever put your trust in Christ, your creator, and became his follower. He says that he's completely forgiving toward all of us. Your sins are not a barrier between you and him. He loves you so much he died on the cross to prove his trustworthiness and love. And that if you're willing to put your trust in him and become his follower, he'll start remaking your heart and reshaping your heart in the image that it was always meant to be shaped in. You can, you can do that today. You can make a decision today to put your trust in Christ and become his follower. And I hope some of you that need to do that will. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your truth that you don't want to just make us people that are outwardly, uh, you know, coerced to behave a certain way, but you want to really give us a heart like your own that loves and does the right thing because it comes from the inside out. Uh, may your spirit have his way in each of our lives today. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.